You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. Our guest today is Charles Chamberlain, who's a history professor, a graduate of uh, Tulane, uh, and is on the, on the history uh, faculty at the University of New Orleans. One of his areas of specialty is American history, early American history, and we'll be talking about one of the most fascinating characters during that period, uh, Alexander Hamilton. Um, Charles is also a musician. He plays, those of you who are fans as I am, of the New Leviathan Oriental Foxtrot Orchestra, We'll see him playing the guitar. Uh, it's a great band, like all bands. He hasn't had a lot much work lately, but we hope that things will get better and we can, I'm looking forward to hearing him again. So welcome, Charles. Let me begin by talking a little bit about uh, Aaron Barr. We hear a lot about him, one, because uh, he was involved in a, in a famous duel against Alexander Hamilton, and Hamilton himself has become um, more of an interesting character because of the success of the musical. So um, Burr winds up being the antagonist in, in a very successful musical, but it's also an interesting story of early American politics and American politics. Burr got to be vice president of the United States under Thomas Jefferson. Uh, imagine this though, and this was back when you had a, a system where the vice president, the person elected vice president was the person who finished second in the race for presidency. And the race for presidency wasn't now where you have people all over the country voting. It was the electoral college. It was the people who were elected to go to Washington and be electors, or in this case, go to New York. And they voted. And the, the top vote together would be elected president, as was George Washington originally, and then John Adams, and then Thomas Jefferson. And then the second highest vote together uh, would be vice president. It was a very, very bad system, and I, I'm surprised that the forefathers, who were so brilliant in so many other things that they did and so many other decisions that they made, couldn't see this, you know? Like, if you got two people running for the same job and you give the losers sort of like the runoff position, they're probably not gonna get along very well. And I think this was the case. There was a lot of tension between uh, Jefferson and Burr. Ultimately, that system was changed more along the lines um, kind of the beginning of what we have today, where the president and the vice president are elected on separate uh, ballots. But anyway, Hamilton and Burr, though, if, uh, if I think where this story can actually begin, uh, when they had their famous feud in New Jersey, uh, Hamilton or, or, uh, or Burr claimed to be offended by some remarks that Hamilton had allegedly made. Hamilton denied it, but, it, but accepted the deal anyway. Now, this was a site in New Jersey, and duel was fairly common. It was illegal back then. It was fairly common. In fact, the very site where they had a duel, Hamilton's son had been in the duel a couple of years earlier and was killed. So imagine this duel. Imagine a situation where you have the vice president of the United States dueling the secretary of the treasury. And, and imagine also what, what, what happened is that the vice president of the United States killed the secretary of the treasury. 
Uh, it was illegal. There was some legal action taken against him, but he was never really, really prosecuted and never really went to, uh, went to jail for it. So anyway, that was the beginning of the saga. What did happen, though, is that his political career was pretty much ended. So he, he left the East Coast, headed out west. And back then, when they talked about the West, they weren't talking about Montana. They were talking about the Adirondacks or maybe Tennessee and, uh, and, and headed out that area. Also toward the new Louisiana Territory. Louisiana Territory, by this time we had the Louisiana Purchase. And that extended from New Orleans all the way to the Canadian border and then to the west almost as far as Montana. So it was a big chunk of property. So there's a lot of land to behold there. And what evolved then is this story over time of this conspiracy on, on, on Burr's behalf to take over the Louisiana Territory and perhaps make an empire out of it. It never happened, but the story that, but the story about getting there uh, was fine. So anyway, uh, let's begin by asking the Charles. Charles, and now Burr was never put in jail or indicted or, or had any punishment for, for killing Hamlet at all. Is that correct? No, he was not. He was indicted for murder uh, by New Jersey and New York, but he fled to Pennsylvania, and he was later acquitted. And um, also, I would like to add that um, it was the, the 12th Amendment that was passed in 1803 that then fixed part of this uh, electoral problem that you brought up, and that is where the new system uh, basically allowed for uh, the Electoral College, the electors, to vote for a president and a vice president specifically, so that it wasn't just the winner take all, and then the, the vice president was uh, the second runner-up. Mm -hmm. So, so after, the, after this duel, this incredible story, we have the situation where the, the vice president has killed the secretary of the treasury. Um, Burr's political career is certainly done. He, he's really a, a bit of a man on the run, not that there were people chasing him, but he certainly had nowhere to go politically. So what happens after that? So, yeah, the, um, the duel happened the summer of 1804, and then uh, once he was indicted, essentially he lost his political standing and his reputation was ruined among uh, mainstream politics. And he was a very ambitious man. He actually had a military past of, of which he had acclaimed some glory during the American Revolution. And so his future looked bright up until um the duel and um and the the death of alexander hamilton so following that time period he moves out west and so during the spring and summer and early fall of 1805 he travels out west he visits many officer veterans of the revolutionary war by the way let's just clarify that when we're talking about the west we're not talking about it like we do today like montana or california that we're talking about maybe Pennsylvania or, or the Adirondacks, that part, uh, up to the Mississippi River. So the West hadn't spread as far west by that time. Yes. So, yeah, the West was simply the Trans-Appalachian West, and it was really the Ohio River Valley and the upper Mississippi Valley uh, when we talk about the American West at that time. And, and technically, that was the Northwest Territories. So uh, to most Americans, the West would simply be across the Appalachians, which is the the area in which he visited all these uh, Revolutionary War veterans. And so, um, yeah, so he visited, for example, General Andrew Jackson in Nashville in May 1805. And the, the short story is he um, pitches uh, basically a mysterious expedition to them 
um, which covered uh, a, a number of points. Some of them included breaking away from the United States, um, and then also they included uh, potentially a coup of the United States. That wasn't really probably realistic, but um, he also tried to recruit people to basically invade at that time what was uh, Spanish Mexico and also Spanish Florida to basically um, take them over and then form a new separate nation. So mind you, the United States was only, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old at that time. And so it was a real test for the integrity of the United States as a vision, um, and especially in terms of um, the Trans-Appalachian region. And, and I will add that the reason Jefferson had acquired Louisiana was because uh, Spain had closed off uh, New Orleans at that time, which was controlled by Spain in 1803, as a port for the Americans. And Jefferson knew that that would be a political liability if the farmers of the Ohio Valley and the upper Mississippi Valley could not sell their goods in New Orleans. So he sent Robert Livingston um, and, and Monroe over to Paris to negotiate for the acquisition of New Orleans, and then Napoleon ended up selling him all of Louisiana, um, which relieved that, uh, that political crisis that Jefferson faced. So Jefferson was very aware that a lot of his political bread and butter resided among those farmers of the West. Um, and so here's Burr advocating that those farmers in the West basically leave the United States. To paraphrase Thomas Jefferson in the famous letter that he wrote defending the idea of uh, purchasing Louisiana, he wrote, there is one place on the continent, the possessor of which is our natural enemy, and that is whoever possesses the Ile d'Orléans. If anybody else possesses New Orleans, they're our enemy. Yeah, that's true, because at the time, New Orleans held the key to the heartland. Um, so whoever was in charge of that, and that all goes up to the, uh, the Battle of New Orleans as well. I mean, you know, there's a, there, it's always fun to, to project what if in, in history, but let's say the British had actually won the Battle of New Orleans, what would have happened uh, to the United States? So, I mean, it's, it's a fun game to play, but yeah, you're right. Uh, New Orleans at that time, especially as at the mouth of the Mississippi, the basically the entryway to the heartland of the entire Mississippi Basin and the entire Midwest, Ohio River Valley, all of that whole region was was integral to U.S. security. Would you mind describing the Louisiana Territory? It's certainly far more than today's present day Louisiana, and it did go as far as Canadian border, didn't it? Yeah, so the Milk River, I believe, in northern Montana actually goes into southern Saskatchewan. Um, but I, I can't remember the name of the treaty that actually um, laid the border between the United States and Canada. But um, they got that little bend in the Milk River, but we got the rest. So, yeah, it basically, um, the Missis excuse me, the Louisiana Territory at that time was everything west of the Mississippi because the United States had already laid claim to everything east of the Mississippi. So that stretched all the way from Montana down to northern New Mexico. Um, and then 14 states were eventually carved out of the, uh, the entire Louisiana territory. Um, you know, huge, all the way from Minnesota over to Montana down to northern New Mexico and then including what would be Oklahoma today and all the states in between. Just to clarify, it was known as the Louisiana Territory, though, 
and that's what Burr was eyeing, the Louisiana Territory, which would not have included New Orleans, which was an entity to itself, with all of the arrests. Well, I'm sure he would love to have had New Orleans, but yeah, and then also, I mean, if he were to invade uh, Spanish Texas and Spanish Florida, um, you know, you can imagine the shape of that nation. So it would, it, you know, potentially in, encompass all of the American Gulf Coast from Florida all of the way around to southern Louisiana and Texas, and then even the uh, the Mexican Gulf states. And, um, you know, I mean, uh, as an aside, I am a historian of the Gulf of Mexico and, and, and the Gulf culture. And um, it's fascinating to think what a nation like that would look like. And we have a lot in common with um, the Mexican Gulf states and, of course, uh, Cuba. And, and historically, New Orleans was was very tied to both Havana and Veracruz, Mexico, through trade. Um, so to me, it's not that far-fetched to see that as, as one entity. Um, but in terms of, of course, the U.S. history and the trajectory of U.S. history, um, we know the reality of it all. So We know Burr came to New Orleans. Do we know anything about his time here? Yes. Well, um, what happened was that that summer of 1805, he went down the Ohio River Valley and then he came to New Orleans in the summer of 1805 in June and July. And he met with a group of men uh, here locally known as the Mexican Association. And it was essentially a group of about 300 uh, American immigrants and also Irish immigrants, and then also some Creoles who um, ideally supported the idea of a Louisiana secession and the idea of annexing New Spain or, or Mexico at that time. Um, and part of this was based on their fear, and this is a, a unrealized fear, that the United States was going to outlaw slavery. And so um, most of these guys were involved in the, the plantation, the cotton and sugar plantation industry, and also the slave trade. And so the idea that Burr pitched uh, was appealing to them. And, you know, gosh, this is only two years after the Louisiana Purchase. And in New Orleans history and, and Louisiana history, um, the, the divide, the political divide and the cultural divide between French-speaking Catholic Creoles and the English speaking Protestant Americans was huge throughout the 19th century for, you know, for well up into the Civil War. So at that time period, it's, it was not unrealistic for um, the Creoles and, and, and also Irish immigrants, James Workman and Daniel Clark um, to support this idea as far-fetched as it sounds right now. Um, and so uh, there's also allegations that uh, Pere Antoine uh, the pastor at St. Louis Cathedral, uh, whose, whose more proper name is Antonio de Sedella. He was a Capuchin monk from Granada, Spain. He also supported the idea as he had sympathy with Spain, and he was allegedly still a, a spy for Spain during this time period. Um, and then also Burr also got support for this idea from the Spanish ambassador to the United States, Carlos Martinez de Irujo Etecon. Um, and he had actually pitched the idea of a coup to Irujo, 
and uh, gotten some support for that. So this this sounds outrageous based on kind of our you know our our knowledge today, but this is uh, this is the reality of, of of what Burr was pitching at the time. Wouldn't he have needed a huge military presence to take over and sustain an area that big? Well, that's a great question. Um, at that time, the U.S. military force was largely congregated on the western borders, um, and it was a small army of only about 3,000 people led by General James Wilkinson, who uh, at that time uh, was in charge of the army as, as the main general and chief of the U.S. Army um, in the west, and that was considered the most vulnerable spot in um in terms of of u.s security was the western frontier um and so again only three thousand soldiers existed and i mean it's it's impossible to say um how many soldiers would have been needed to actually uh potentially invade spanish texas or mexico at the time and take it over and certainly spain could mobilize Reforces, uh, excuse me, uh, reinforcements from Texas and Mexico to combat that. So uh, to me, that would be the real question is um, not so much uh, how many forces from America could Burr mobilize, but how strong the resistance might be on the Spanish side in Texas and or even how willing the residents of, uh, of New Spain or Mexico at that time would be willing to join uh, the forces of Burr. And I would also like to add that Burr potentially had his eye on the silver mines of northern Mexico in Zacatecas, which um, this is kind of an aside, but uh, Spain had, had ideally wanted to protect those mines for the last 200 years leading up to the 1800s. And that was partly why when Spain took over Louisiana, in the 1760s that they initiated the land grant settlement program because they wanted to provide a population buffer against any potential invasion by the English speaking people of the East Coast into northern Spain, northern New Spain to take over those silver mines. My guess is that Spain would have put up a very fierce fight and marshaled all their reinforcements to protect those mines and then combat Burr's attempts to create essentially a coup in that region. Let's just qualify about the Creoles in, in, in their attitude, because the feeling is that the Creole, the Creoles who were there when the Louisiana Purchase took place, uh, they were really there before New Orleans was a town in which the English was a minority language, and it was primarily French and Spanish. And so this was a real change in lifestyle to have Anglo-Saxons moving into the area. So to them, it was a bit of an intrusion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. And uh, one of my favorite resources, uh, historical sources for that is um, Pierre Clément de la Sat's Memoirs of My Life, which he wrote as the French colonial prefect in 1803 at the time of the Louisiana Purchase. And if you've ever read that, he uh, describes the way that the Americans were moving in. He views them as kind of greedy um, capitalists who were obsessed with kind of racial order and they were um, very cocky and and especially Wilkinson he portrays as a very cocky guy who who wants to push his way around just based on his identity as an American and the French saw themselves as very different um, 
And, uh, uh, you know, one funny story is, of course, around the time of the Louisiana Purchase, they had several heated engagements at the balls that winter of 1804 surrounding the repertoire, um, basically um, fighting over who was going to dance to a French quadrille or an English quadrille. So uh, the Battle of the Dance Floor is really kind of a metaphor for um, this cultural conflict and the way the French resented the Americans coming in with their uh, their English culture and a different language. So yes, absolutely. We like to, when we can, to include a little bit of music in this podcast, and certainly some of the most famous music now is the music from Hamilton, and in which there is a bar character who is very prominent. And there's one song in particular, it's a dialogue, uh, in which Burr and Hamilton, when they first meet, and Burr has given Hamilton advice about life and about uh, politics. And by the way, if you've never heard this music, be prepared because the dialect is um, is different. It's not native dialect at that time. It's it's hip hop, uh, which is something that's kind of really unusual, but it works in its own kind of uh, wild way. So here it is, the version of Hamilton explaining or Burr explaining to Hamilton about political life. Graduating to and join the revolution. He looked at me like I was stupid. I'm not stupid. So how'd you do it? How'd you graduate so fast? It was my parents' dying wish before they passed. You're an orphan. Of course, I'm an orphan. God, I wish there was a war. Then we could prove that we're worth more than anyone bargained for. Can I buy you a drink? That would be nice. While we're talking, let me offer you some free advice. Talk less. What? Smile more. Huh. Don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. You can't be serious. You want to get ahead. Yes. Fools who run their mouths off wind up dead. Ay-yow, yow yow what time is it? Showtime! Like I said. Have you seen Hamilton? I have seen it. Um, I saw it in London last year, and uh, my daughter actually uh, loved it when it was really big four years ago or five years ago, whenever that was. And she knows all the lyrics. Um, and so um, I, I think there's the scene where there's the duel between Hamilton and Burr. And I, I appreciate Hamilton and, um, and what it did for... Um, especially a new generation's understanding of the founding father's history, because it really opened it up to um, a younger generation and personalized it in a way that had not been done before. So um, even though it's kind of a rap hip hop version of a musical and may turn off some older adults, um, I think for a younger generation, they really appreciate it. And again, they got to learn a lot about uh, the founding father generation, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Burr, et cetera. You know, there is a theory that sometimes in duels, both sides mean to lose. Uh, they shoot in different directions, and there is an understanding that they didn't really intend to kill anyone. They just wanted to make a statement. Now, what about the Hamilton Burr do? Do you think Hamilton didn't want to kill Burr, but Burr thought otherwise? So that's the theory is that Hamilton missed on purpose, as you said, and it was quite common for them to go through the ritual of the duel. And, and essentially the whole duel um, principle was to um, basically protect your honor and preserve your honor by, by um, you know, going 
in, in through this ritual of the duel. And for whatever reason, Burr aimed to kill. And maybe it speaks to his character um, as, as someone we may not um, really admire much. Um, and a lot of people do admire everything that Alexander Hamilton accomplished in history. And it is a real tragedy. Um, but yeah, that's the historical theory is that Hamilton purposely misaimed and that Burr did aim and was, uh, was dead on when he killed Hamilton. There are a couple of names on the part of the time, a couple of names that I want to go back to for a second. First of all, Governor Claiborne. So um, he was um, basically appointed by Thomas Jefferson to be first territorial governor of, of Mississippi. And then when they acquired Louisiana, then he was nominated as the, the territorial governor of Louisiana. And then for the first authentic state gubernatorial election in 1812, he ran and won legitimately. And so he was the first governor um, officially in the state. And um, initially he was not very well liked by the Creoles because he didn't speak French. That was kind of a political blunder in my opinion in terms of Jefferson appointing him. If you're gonna appoint someone to be governor of a French speaking territory, um, they should have some knowledge of French. But uh, what happened was Claiborne's first wife died. She's actually buried in St. Louis number one in the back in the Protestant cemetery. And uh, then he married a young Creole lady um, a young Creole woman, I should say, she was actually a teenager. Um, but in doing so, he basically kind of created networks with the Creole community and and began to earn their respect and um, and and their cooperation. You've also touched on Wilkinson. He was almost a a co-governor of the area and a military commander. Yeah, so um, he. You know, he was appointed as the official commander of the territory, being the uh, the general in chief of the U.S. Army at the time. And so um, he was in charge of all the troops in Louisiana. And um, and interestingly, he had the potential, if we're talking about the Burr conspiracy, to mobilize the U.S. Army to support the Burr conspiracy. And this is a whole nother subject, but um, there are allegations that Burr, excuse me, that Wilkinson was a co-conspirator with Burr and that he had agreed to go in on the plot from the beginning. And then when it came down to the fall of 1806, when Burr tried to implement the plot, Wilkinson then turned him in for essentially treason and sedition, uh, which led to his arrest. Um, so in the end, Wilkinson came clean on the whole plot um, what is interesting is that in the trial that occurred in 1807, it was a big federal trial um, under John Marshall, uh, Wilkinson did not submit any of the correspondence as evidence, which would have laid out a lot of the details. And, and back then, um, that was okay to, to withhold evidence in, in really the name of, of privacy. That was a personal records. I'm not going to submit them. Um, and so that actually protected Burr as he <laughs> generally was acquitted in the trial of 1807 based on lack of evidence. Um, and, and again, it was the lack of evidence that was uh, really the, the kind of a Achilles heel of the, the prosecution in that trial. Well, in terms of who came out of the head in history, in the long run, 
Wilkinson had a small alley named after him in the French Quarter, and Claiborne had a Grand Avenue. Yeah, good point. And a lot of people probably don't even know Wilkinson Row in the French Quarter. It's just one block long, right off uh, of, of Jackson Square, on um, on the on the uptown side, on the upriver side. You've also mentioned Pierre Antoine. His real name is Antoine de Sedalia, and he was from Spain, and he was a priest. But in the end, he turned out to be a spy for Spain. Yes. Um, so both Wilkinson and Sedella have uh, basically been acknowledged by historians as being spies for Spain during this time period. And the great Creole historian Charles Guiret um, went into the Spanish archives in the 1850s and found the evidence that Wilkinson was on the Spanish payroll during this time period, and as he had been since the 1790s. And so, again, this gives him a black eye in, in terms of U.S. history, uh, the fact that he was the head of the army, you know, the general in chief of the U.S. Army, yet he was also on the Spanish payroll as a spy. And then Father Sedella, Père Antoine, um, is also noted as a spy for Spain. And essentially all that meant was he would write letters to Spanish authorities in the crown and basically kind of give them an idea about what was happening in New Orleans at that time from his perspective, it would maybe with tidbits of gossip. But it wasn't as though Father Sedella was, uh, you know, like the classic kind of spook spy that we think of. Um, you know, he was going about his daily business as pastor of St. Louis Cathedral, which he served uh, for almost 50 years. And then he would also, again, contribute this correspondence as, um, as just kind of an ear on the ground kind of guy. To round this out, do you think Burr could have ever been successful in creating the Louisiana Territory? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, say Wilkinson had been able to rally the 3,000 troops um, along with, say, Burr potentially rallying another 1,000 volunteers, what would they have done? Would they have invaded, um, you know, Texas and then met with the Spanish army? How big would the Spanish army have been? I've, I've never seen any conjecture in terms of how many troops the Spanish army could mobilize, but um, my, my feeling is honestly that Spain would have put up a big fight because um, they weren't just going to roll over in the name of some uh, American adventurist who wanted to create a coup and overthrow, you know, basically all of, of Mexico in, and then also take over the mines. I mean, there was so much to lose that uh, I think the, the Spanish royal crown would have thrown everything they had against an, an American invasion like that. So um, in the end, what happened was that the press basically vilified the plot, this, this expedition plot, so much that um, it basically discouraged a lot of supporters so that in the fall of 1806, when Byrd tried to enact this plot, come down the Ohio River Valley and mobilize the alleged volunteers that only, you know, 100 or so men showed up. And that uh, was not enough to, to be successful against you know any kind of invasion. In his, in his vision, did he see himself as being the emperor of this territory? Um, I think probably so, yeah. I, you know, I don't know whether he would um, propose the idea of a Republican democracy political system in his new territory, but 
Um, I think most people view himself, view him as, uh, is, yeah, like a dictator emperor type. But we'll never know. <laughs> you know, it's a little fun aside in the show. We have this segment called This or That, in which we ask you some, uh, just, some just for fun, some questions to compare different things. And to do this, we want to call on our, on our, our producer, Kelly Masco. Kelly? All right. So this is a test. You either pass or fail. Just kidding. <laughs> so the first one is Hamilton or Lafayette? Or Lafayette? Oh, gosh. Um, I would say go with Lafayette. I find him very intriguing from an international perspective um, in terms of a French nobleman who supported the United States Revolution. And then um, he also um, co-wrote The Rights of Man with Thomas Jefferson, which spurred the French Revolution. So as important as Alexander Hamilton is in terms of federal policy, I think Lafayette probably has more of a, a, a larger impact on the international stage. And also it's kind of interesting because he came and visited New Orleans in the 1820s on a grand tour and was was very well received when he came there. I think it's a great answer, but I gotta say, I'm surprised, but it's a, it's a good answer. Everything you say, you say, and you got a city <laughs> named after him in Louisiana, so. Yes, that's true. <laughs> the second one is Adams or Jefferson? Adams, number one. Oh gosh. Um, I would say um, John Adams Sr. Um, yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of. I'm more a fan of Jefferson, um, just because I think Jefferson is more interesting as uh, you know a scientist and his promotion of the American West and his vision of the American um, the, the the expansion across the Trans Appalachian region and his support of the Louisiana Purchase, the Louisiana Territory, is of course extremely relevant to our own lives today. So uh, Adams was more of a Federalist who was more New England centered. So I would go with Jefferson. And Jefferson got a Paris nurse named after <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Okay, the third one is dueling with swords or dueling with pistols. Oh gosh, um, I would, I mean, how much damage can you do with a sword in a duel? Um, I would say pistols are more fun, right? <laughs> and um, and also, back to what Errol said, it gives you the leeway to accidentally miss and then save your opponent so that you don't ruin your political reputation. So there you go, pistols. Swords take longer, too. That's too. True. <laughs> Swords can be messy. Yeah, they can be messy. They take longer. <laughs> Very messy. So Errol wanted to know this last one, Aaron Burr or John Wilkes Booth? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Two um, <laughs> I don't know. That's a good one. Both of them are, are kind of unsavory characters. Um, gosh, that's a good one. Uh, I would say Aaron Burr. He's more intriguing. He actually has the military background that you can admire in terms of his accomplishments during the, the revolution. Um, he had noble goals in terms of being president. So he ran for president in 1796 and again in 1800. Uh, John Wilkes Booth was, was simply a stage actor uh, with a political grudge. So uh, Burr over Booth. Let me conclude with this. How did Burr's career end? You'd think it would have ended with jail, but it didn't. 
Well, no, he never did. He was acquitted in 1807 for uh, essentially sedition. And again, because of the lack of evidence, and again, the prosecution was very weak. They, they didn't lay out enough evidence. And so the jury came back and said, we don't necessarily believe that Burr is innocent, but because of the lack of evidence, uh, we're going to have to declare an acquittal. And so then he went um, overseas. He practiced law in England and then came back to New York where he continued to practice law until his death, I believe, in the 1820s. Um, and his death mask is actually held in the, uh, the New York Historical Society Museum in New York City. So going back to New York City. Um, and so, I mean, I think by the time he came back to the United States, he had been kind of forgotten. He was still respected as a lawyer. So he did make a career out of that. We've been talking with Charles Chamberlain, who's a, an historian at the University of New Orleans. Besides doing lectures and research, uh, he also does work for various libraries in terms of when you see exhibits and you see the history in the narrative, he's one of the guys who comes and works on the history and to make sure that is correct, that what you're reading is correct. And Charles, don't you have a project that you're working on in Mississippi right now? Yes. So um, in Gulfport, Mississippi, there's the historic 33rd Avenue High School, which is a historic black high school from the period of segregation. So right now the Department of Labor is renovating the old high school and then we're um, Historia, my history consulting company and museum exhibits company is creating an exhibit that's going to go in that former high school to honor the history of the high school and um, esteemed alumni and graduates. So, Well, this has been delightful. Thank you very much. Uh, Burr is a, a person that a lot of people have begun, become more interested in, but they didn't know what they needed to know. And I think now we know. So thank you very much. And by the way, on your music research. Let's get you back one day to talk about that too. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504 828 1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.